welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today we have Stephanie Van Jan from Blockcore, and we have a funny story of how we met. Stephanie wrote a really awesome article about Polkadot security. And I said, that's really great. Does anybody know her? And I found someone to introduce me. And it turns out that we are neighbors. So welcome, Stephanie. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, so I have been studying um, technology management. So I had like a, a background in business and computer science, which kind of set the basis for like going deeper into blockchain. And then right after my studies, I started to work as a token engineer. So this is like already two years that I've been in the space. And in this context, I also went deeper into Bitcoin and into the token economics of Bitcoin and also into Austrian economics. And I learned a lot while going into the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And these learnings I also apply when I'm um, like contributing in the design of crypto economics. Yeah, so that kind of gets into the first question of like, so you studied economics and then how did you end up, what got you interested in blockchain and tokens? Yeah, so this actually happened uh, during university when I went to a conference where Etherisk was like presented and I was quite excited about their like automatic uh, endurances for flights and I could see the potential of this automation. And um, yeah, so this is why I actually already wrote my master thesis on the applications of blockchain technology in the endurance industry. So both for like um, incumbents, but also for like new startups. And I actually like had a whole view on the whole like endurance blockchain scene and evaluated the startups. Yeah. And so what's unique about blockchain economics compared to like what you would learn in university? Well, to be honest, um, I had to like relearn a lot from what I got to know at uh, at university because we were never told about Austrian economics or like really important aspects of economics were just missing. And so I really had to learn it by myself. And um, so this maybe just as an introduction to like what you learn at university and what you really have to know then. Yeah, so like normal economics, you I would like say this is... Uh, when market participants come together and exchange the goods and services, and they can do it in offline or in online. But when we have it in crypto economics, it's only online or only in the digital world. And maybe often you also have like pseudonyms, so you don't know with whom you actually interact. So this is kind of the greatest difference between crypto economics and normal economics. So I would say like crypto economics is a subset of uh, economics and of course you have to understand the whole technical background and one more thing uh, in crypto economics the rules of interactions are already set in the beginning and the normal economic marketplace is much more like free or adaptable which is like super important to have really good crypto economies or tokens token economy in your blockchain projects yeah so that's like pretty Broad. So let's try to make it like an example with Bitcoin, which is kind of like the first crypto economic project. Can you discuss that token model as a foundation of crypto economics and like how that 
how that subset compares to normal economics? So uh, in Bitcoin, the market participants are incentivized to give their hash power to the network for receiving Bitcoin in, in return. So this is like the process called mining, where you have your mining hardware and where you put your electricity in. And when you find a valid block, you get the Bitcoins that are like issued in a block reward. Um, so... This whole building up of the network is incentivized by the issuance of Bitcoins. And um, of course, the, the network also has to have a utility by itself. So it must be like relevant for the user. And you have, of course, a peer-to-peer -peer decentralized uh, marketplace or a decentralized payment system where uh, you cannot be censored. So there are like many advantages of a Bitcoin that made it useful for, for the user eventually. Like in what ways compared to normal money? Well, I mean, with normal money, you always have the intermediary, the bank. So if you do something that the government doesn't like, then potentially your bank account could be closed. And this doesn't happen with Bitcoin. So you can reclaim your financial self-sovereignty. Yeah. And so like that's the, that's the utility part. And then what about like the monetary, the monetary aspect of it? Yeah. Uh, maybe this is of equal or even more important, um, you don't have this monetary debasement which you have in fiat systems where they can just print more and more money, therefore dilute the money that you have on your own. But it's like really a set which amount of Bitcoins are issued per time interval. So you can be sure that someone cannot steal your Bitcoins in a way by just producing um, like 100 million instead of like set 21 million. And uh, yeah, this is like very valuable for a money so that you have a cap on the supply. Wouldn't there be like a middle ground? Because there is there is value in being able to change the money supply or adapt the money supply to like the needs of money in the market. So current central banks just tend to print more and more. But could you see a crypto economic model that actually inflates and deflates the currency depending on the market demand for it? Well, there are different schools of thought on whether it is, is reasonable to be able to inflate the monetary supply and inject money. Um, this is like typical Keynesian economics, where you say uh, we inject money to, to stimulate the economy. But when you do this, you have an, very often an inefficient uh, allocation of resources. And to whom do you provide this money to, you know? I mean, then you have kind of a central authority that distributes the money to whom they like, you know? So I'm rather from the Austrian economics view, where there is no reason to change the supply to like make some artificial thing, you know, there should be a free market and the market kind of balances itself out. And if a company doesn't have a good product um, and isn't sustainable in the, in the competitive landscape, then it's reasonable that this company does not survive any longer. And so these people that work there have to come up with new ideas that serve a market need, and this is, which is actually for the common good and where they can serve the needs of the people and then new innovation can like come up. Sure. So I want to get away from proof of work a little bit because this is like <laughs> a, a foundation for like a much bigger thing. And so like in proof of work, like you said, people are trading their hash power in order to get the new supply of this money. Mm -hmm. um, how is proof of stake different than that? 
Well, proof of stake is like very different to proof of work. Um, people often make a comparison, which is like rather superficial. But when you go deeper and consider the attack vectors, you see that there are like different opportunities that spread out. Maybe we can go into this uh, later. But yeah, proof of stake um, on a base definition is that you put in your tokens, which is your stake of the network. Um, if the token is connected to the network, which we could also talk later. And when you put in your, your tokens, you can then have the right to validate a new block. So this is actually proof of stake. So you make the proofs according to the stake that you have. And proof of work is um, according to the mining power that you put in and the, the chain, which is the longest, essentially. Yeah, so like there are some differing initial conditions here, right? Because like in a proof of work chain, you can start kind of like with no monetary base and then start creating it based on like the proof of work. But in proof of stake, you have to stake tokens, mm -hmm. which means there has to be tokens at the start. Yeah, and so can exactly. you can you talk about like the I guess like the differing conditions that you need to make one of these networks come into being? We we already discussed that uh in Bitcoin we kind of build up the, this whole network by by the mining where miners are incentivized to join the network to get the get the bitcoins so the whole network grows and you actually have the same concept also in proof of stake system when you have a block reward that is issued every once in a while or issued regularly then the people are incentivized to contribute to the network or to this whole community to receive the token. But this is, of course, it's only relevant um, for people to contribute their work or their energy to it if they um, receive a token that is of value. So actually, it's quite a similar thing with uh, building up the supply side if you um, have also this block reward that is issued over time. So, of course, that depends from project to project. If you don't have a release of tokens over time, it can be totally different. Right. So you need some kind of like block reward to get people to run their validators in the system. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this building up of the supply side is always very relevant and you do this with the block rewards. This is always like one one of the basic building blocks that we teach our blockchain projects actually. Yeah, and then so like how should that block rewards evolve over time? So far uh, with Bitcoin, the block reward we had in the beginning more and then later less. And in the beginning, you need to incentivize the people more because the network is not of so much value yet. So actually, it's quite similar to venture capital investing. So in the beginning, if you invest very early, you get um, more of the whole company with the same stake. Instead, if you with the same amount of money that you put in, then if you invest like two, three years later. So in the beginning for like 100,000, you get like um, 5%. And if you put in 100,000, like three years later, you only get 0.05%. So this is quite similar. So there should be a bigger block reward in the beginning. Yeah. So when we think about like the value of a what a protocol is, like at the, at the beginning, it's more speculative. And so, yeah, you get like a higher share of the network. How do you even come up with like the value of a, of a decentralized protocol? Yeah. So the value is actually determined by the whole design, you know. Um, so if the network is designed in a way that it fulfills the needs of uh, potential customers, then, then you already have a value, you know. So going back to Bitcoin, there is a need to transact uh, without a financial intermediary and to transact globally. 
And this value is covered by Bitcoin very, very well. And you knew it right from the beginning. So you know that this like need is served by the protocol. And um, yeah, so this is actually the baseline. You have to have a nice product or a nice service that you offer within your network. So how do you define a customer in this case? Because like in Bitcoin, it's kind of clear that like you're just using this to send a transaction and you pay a little fee to the miner. And so you kind of like a customer and a, a business, if you will. But like the protocol isn't a business. You're not really paying the protocol. And a lot of proof of stake networks, you have staking for various services. So how mm -hmm. do you... Like, how do you think of a customer in like a protocol? Yeah, um, so you should always like have this business analogy in mind, because if this network doesn't create bad value for someone, then it won't run, you know. But essentially, these customers are rather users. So it's there are similarities to the traditional world in a way that they put in money for using the network, which makes them similar to the customer. But actually, they're really using this whole system. There's something that I could add um, when you asked me on the value of the protocol. It's not only the products and services the mm -hmm. protocol provides, but it's also um, the whole design of the protocol. Yeah. If it's sustainable, if, it, if there are really incentives for the people to contribute to the protocol. And you can already see this right in the beginning, you know. Yeah. So when we talk about like protocol value and like and you have uh, the users how do you like what kind of services can these protocols provide um because normally like if you think of like money it just it has value because kind of everybody says that it has value and with tokens the value has to actually be tied to what the protocol is doing and so how do you think of like different things that protocols can do and make sure that the actual token is tied to the value that it's providing mm -hmm. So first, I would like to come that money has value because the people say it has value. So this is like actually typical for the fiat system, you know. So the government says it's a valuable and we back it with our government thing. Um, and this is why you consider it as valuable. But with Bitcoin, there's much more behind or with like these capped systems. Uh, it's also the same for gold, you know, because you have a cap on it um, that you know that um, it cannot be diluted. This is also another thing. And you can use it for certain things. So it's not just, okay, we think it has value, but there's like actual value behind. So you get like stronger guarantees. Um, it's an inherent guarantee. So, I mean, okay, if you had like really trustworthy governments that wouldn't like just deflate, uh, inflate the supply, then this system could have value as well. Like in Austrian economics, we're always talking about competitive landscapes of money. So if you have like one currency where the government is honest and where they don't inflate the supply, then this currency could be more worth than other currencies. And uh, with Bitcoin, the beauty about Bitcoin is that you cannot um, just change the supply because it's decentralized and the people have an incentive to keep it down. So this is the beauty of Bitcoin because you don't have to trust um, a central party in that. So I did the token engineering for the VOM protocol. And the VOM protocol the, is a platform for word of mouth content. And the token is designed in a way that with these word of mouth token and a brand can like inject uh, money by buying these WOMs into the protocol and therefore slightly influence um, the creation of brand related products. But nevertheless, this money that is like put into the protocol also goes to those 
that uh, create word of mouth content for competitive brands, you know, and this is how this one protocol endures that we have uh, diverse word of mouth content on, let's say, shoes, you know, you have word of mouth content of like all brands, but only one brands put the word of mouth. in. so maybe there is a little bit more of word of mouth content for this one brand, but nevertheless, you have it for all the rest. And this is valuable for the user because the user can like check these different contents and make himself a more holistic view and not it's just not um, bombarded with the advertisements of one brand. Yeah, so that's actually like a good segue into another question, which is, so we have protocols and then a lot of protocols are meant to have applications built on top of them. Mm -hmm. And so the value of a proof of stake network comes from having the protocols token staked. And what do you think of the case where like an application's token actually has more value than the protocol it's built on top of. Uh, what are like the implications of that happening? Mm -hmm. Or do you think it's like reasonable? Is it a reasonable situation to happen? Mm -hmm. um, maybe before I go into this question. So one thing that de determines value is the scarcity. And when you stake it, you lock these tokens up. So this is one factor. But of course, there are like many th factors and not only this one. Okay, and so go now going back to your question, I think it's totally possible that you have like a base layer and then you have another um, project that builds on this base layer and maybe has more market value than the base layer. And um, if you consider this uh, for Polkadot, I would say that um, Polkadot becomes more valuable when we have more good projects building on Polkadot that can interact with each other and assume we have like one project that is outstanding and everyone wants to kind of participate with this project, then they, there will be like a run to Polkadot because they want to build on Polkadot to be able to better uh, interact with the system because you share this interoperability. So I would say that um, like when they're like good projects building on the protocol, then the protocol gains in value. Yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what we're going for. Um, Very good. Do you think there's any case where that goes out of sync? Would there? Would it be a risk if it went out of sync? What do you mean with out of sync? Like if one of the applications actually became more valuable than the underlying protocol itself. So I don't see a problem in that. Actually, if this project becomes more valuable than the underlying protocol, but it is like has this protocol as a necessity, then this application is very interested in the improvement of the protocol, maybe according to its needs. If the needs of this application would be different to the other applications, then it could be a problem. But generally, I would not say so. It really depends on the case. But um, there's like a funny example in the real world. You have like pipelines from Russia to Germany. And um, then you have the gas that is transported in these pipelines. And I would say that the gas company behind is more valuable than the pipelines, but it's built upon the pipelines or the pipelines are a prerequisite to distribute the, the gas. And it's totally fine that the gas company is more valuable than the pipelines. And the gas company actually has an interest to make these uh, pipelines stable and that they don't corrode. And so they might even work together with them. Yeah, so like one of the new things we've heard about in DeFi is this idea of staking derivatives, um, where mm -hmm. people can, they have their tokens locked up to be proof of stake validator, um, and they're supposed to be locked up and kind of illiquid for a long period of time. Um, but there are already protocols out there that will let you use those stake tokens as collateral for a, for a loan token. How do you think that affects proof of stake? 
So I would say that if the right to vote in the system is also transferred, um, then this could be a problem because let's assume that 90% of the stakers do these collateral things and then um, transfer their right to vote um, to those they make business with, then these rights to vote could be all could all land at this one party that is entangled with the collateral and the loans. So what's first, and, like, what do you mean by right to vote here? Do you mean like uh, consensus voting or governance voting? I mean, governance voting. Okay. I mean, if they would give away the consensus voting, it wouldn't really make sense because then the whole like, yeah, I mean, then they wouldn't be a validator anymore, actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to make sure like it's a it's a little naming collision because we have consensus voting and like a PPFT and then there's like voting for governance mm -hmm, proposals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so I just want to like make sure that your answer is clear. Yeah, actually, um but this is a good point. So what do you give away when you have it as a collateral? You just say, "Okay, here I have these tokens and if something happens, you can have them, but until this event comes into place, they cannot have the tokens. And if they don't have the tokens, they neither have the right to vote, nor do they have the right to like uh, validate. So then it's not really a problem. But if it kicks in that uh, these tokens are transferred then and the rights to vote and validate as well, these rights could be like... Um, bundled at one player that could overtake the whole system. And now we're at the interesting thing of attacks on overtaking a system, um, which we could also go in more deeper because if the government says that you can uh, make upgrades to the system if you have like two thirds and someone has these two thirds, they can just make any upgrade and um, lay the system blank or, or crush the system actually. However, they would not really have an incentive to do so because, you know, they invested with the tokens and they would like diminish their tokens. But it could be feasible. I mean, it could be a, a competitor to Polkadot who just wants to like um, lay Polkadot dormant. That's definitely possible. Yeah, I mean, like for Polkadot, 51% of the tokens can... 51, like, is that can, right? ...can vote for like a new governance proposal. I mean... Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, then it's even 51. Yeah. yeah. The two-thirds thing is for like consensus only, which is like mm -hmm. a different oh. a different threshold mm -hmm. to cross. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, let's get into like the attack scenarios. What do attacks look like in proof of stake? Yeah, so um, here when you have these 51% and you can change the governance rules, then actually you can change everything through the governance rules. Or am I am I wrong with that? Um, yeah, I mean you can change like the actual runtime itself, so like the logic of the chain. But there's kind of like two thresholds because there's the there's consensus threshold, which is like two thirds of the value at stake, um, which is not necessarily all of the network, right? Like there could be like fifty percent of the network is staked behind validators. But then 51% of the total network could make a governance proposal or pass a governance proposal for anything. So you could actually have, even if you have like more than two thirds of the validator sets, you don't necessarily have more than half of the network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said uh, that the consensus is there. It's necessary to have two thirds. But if you already have the governance of 51, then you can also change the consensus, right? Yeah, you can change the rules that it's... Yeah, so you can yeah. change anything. The two-third actually doesn't matter. So the 51 was what we're looking for, for the token holding, actually. Yeah, yeah. to change the rules of the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, and here I would like to point out something, um, what happens if proof, with proof of stake. So when you, when you change the whole system, then 
there could be a group who says, no, we don't want to make this change. And then you could make a fork, which is another version. But the problem is that when you have a fork, the tokens are doubled and in your new v version, you're again have like more than 51% of the attackers so you cannot like really save the whole system and this is actually like very different to proof of work so um, there when you want to make another version you make this fork and the honest miners just continue with the other chain but this other chain is not compromised immediately because it's not depending on the token base but rather on how much like hash power is going into it so this is a very great difference between proof of work and proof of stake and which makes these 51% attack for proof of stake quite a threat so we should really take care that it doesn't happen well i guess like in the fork you could also just when you when you have a hard fork like you're in a humans involved type of situation anyway mm -hmm. um so you could just decide like in your quote unquote honest fork to just take the tokens away from the people who attacked you yeah right? yeah this is <laughs> this is what i was uh, also thinking and um however this is like a really great step of censorship actually and it doesn't really fit to this like open blockchain decentralized thing because then it's like, yeah, totally censored and totally centralized authority. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily like a centralized authority. It's just like some subgroup has decided that they want yeah. a new network. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So in Polkadot, we have like this concept of parachain and every parachain is its own blockchain and it can have its own token or it doesn't even need to have its own token. It just needs to provide this interface to the Polkadot relay chain. So since Polkadot is providing like the security guarantees and you don't really have to worry about like the forking or block reorg attacks, how do you think about like token models for parachains? Mm -hmm. Yeah, here I would like to go deeper what security actually means. So I understood that Polkadot checks whether the collators follow the rules according to the protocol. Uh, according to that parachain, yeah. Yeah, according to the protocol of the parachain, yeah, according yeah. to the rules of the parachain. And if not, they just re reject the block. But if they follow the rules, it is like bundled into the relay chain and it's, yeah, fixed. Yeah. But they don't check whether the rules are reasonable. No, that's up to the parachain. Exactly. So, and this is the important thing that uh, parachains have to do. So they have to have a reasonable consensus model where uh, the collators are incentivized to collect the transaction data and where collators should not be able to commit fraud and to drain the system. So what is fraud in this case? Fraud is, for example, that they change transactions in a way that they get more tokens if it's a token-based system, what I would like assume now. So if we have a block award for the collators as well with the native token of the parachains so that they could make um, more tokens that are reserved to the collator, this could be another fraud. So, but there are like many scenarios and it very depends on protocol, which uh, fraud possibilities there are. So at one, we really went into this and then, then, then we had the incentive mechanisms and then we really had to brainstorm, okay, how could you attack the system? And for every attack vector, we kind of need to fill, um, fill these attack vectors with reasonable token economic tools. And this can get quite complex. So, and we know that attackers are like very smart. They really know how to 
how these like systems run. And if there's something, eventually someone will find an attack vector. So you really have to um, be sure that the whole token economy is designed in a sound way that it incentivizes the people and uh, fraud is prevented. And for incentivizing the people or, or the collators or the whole community, you need to take into account that if you make it token-based, this token needs to have a certain value on how does the token receive value. And yeah, we can go into this in more depth if you would like to. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so um, the token um, essentially receives value if you cannot just inflate the token supply according to one's wishes or one actor just takes more tokens or creates more tokens. So this is uh, the one thing. And the other thing is that the token has to have a utility. So usually the token has a utility in a way that you can access the protocol or the parachain or the products and services that are on the parachain with this token. And you cannot... Without a token, you cannot use the whole system. And this is usually how the token receives a value. And when it satisfies some needs um, with the protocol, then there will be demand and then there will be a certain price for that. And only collators will work for a token that has value, which is then merit in a price. However, with price and value, it's also a difference, you know. Yeah, I mean, luckily, like with collators, it's not actually that much work. So I think like a lot of projects will run collators for their own networks because they want to have collators. Yeah, I mean, then there's the question whether it's decentralized or not. So if you just have, uh, let's say, one blockchain project that runs all the nodes by itself, then it's centralized. And then there's the question, why do you really need a blockchain? Right. So this is what I've seen in the space, actually, that most of the projects don't really need a blockchain. Right, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so like in the case of Polkadot, since you have the rules agreed to ahead of time, even if the collators are centralized, they still have to follow those rules. As long as like the Polkadot validator set is decentralized and they're not colluding with that particular parachain. Um, yes, they have to follow the rules of Polkadot. But I mean, they're like a sub-ecosystem. And um, I'm, I was like rather thinking about the sub-ecosystem and here so that the protocol is designed in a way that um, there is no fraud and yeah, you know, so um, would you say that it's relevant for a project to build on Polkadot if it's like not decentralized? The project? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because you can still provide guarantees that you're, or proof that you're following some set of publicly verifiable rules. Mm -hmm. So what I see in blockchain in general, blockchain provides the value that these transactions cannot be changed, like the past uh, blocks cannot be changed. Right. You have this awesome Polkadot that you like bundle everything together and then you cannot change the, the past history. But here again, you really have to think of the use case. And this is like with every project, you really have to go in it. Like what does what is the value that the blockchain provides? And uh, I mean, if it's if you have a centralized blockchain, let's say, then okay, they could not change the the past history, but I could just make a new entry that overrides uh, one of the or one address of the past history. And uh, you can't do that on Polkadot, though. So even if you had just like a single centralized oh, collator mm -hmm. for your parachain, mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't be able to do that unless it's like written into your 
like state transition rules, which seems like a bad idea. Um, but since that's like completely separate from the validation logic, like that's a governance thing. So they would still need like the approval of their token holders to say like, yes, this one collator can go change the past, but I don't mm -hmm. think they would do okay. that. So so what I meant, um, you cannot like go to, to the change and change these blocks that are already written. Um, but I mean that you can just make an update to a past address and you could like, if you like look on the blockchain, you can see, okay, this was the past state. But now um, this update was made and um, it was artificially, it was just imposed. You could see it, but nevertheless, you could do it if you have a centralized parachain where all tokens or if there are no tokens where you just have one collator, then the collator could do whatever it wants. Um, so like the, if the rules are set like that. Right. So like, but the tokens are different. So like you could have a single collator, but it wouldn't necessarily have all of the tokens of the system. So like if the if this collator had like 50% of the tokens and was the only collator, then yeah, it could go change mm -hmm. the rules and do whatever it wants. But like anybody with 50% of the tokens can do whatever they want. But yeah. if the tokens are actually like distributed in a reasonably decentralized way, then the collator still has to follow like the rules of the chain. Yeah, but um, when the tokens are distributed reasonably, it is reasonable to assume that um, these token holders also are collators and stake if you have a proof of stake system of the parachain. Right. So I just assumed proof of stake right now. Yeah, I mean, That's like you cool. could do proof of work or proof of stake or proof of authority or whatever you mm -hmm. want really to select your to select your collators so maybe um what i what i would like to give as an outlook for all the parachain projects out there is that they really have a close look on the token economy that the token has a value through its um, use case so that is usable and that it is connected to the network. So that's kind of an access token to the network that this whole network provides value f uh, or provides a product and service for the eventual user. And that collators and whole community is incentivized in a sound way that leads to improvements of the protocol or the certain network goal, which, is, which has to be thought through in the beginning. And eventually, you should uh, maybe team up with uh, some hackers or make bounty programs for um, the community to check like attack vectors in your system that you are able to fix them before you go live with your project. Yeah, I think like the main risk there is actually like governance attack vectors um, mm -hmm. because like Polkadot's providing the finality guarantees that like your blocks aren't going to get reverted or there won't be any double spends. Like the main things you have to look out for is to have collators that aren't going to censor transactions and to not have any governance failures where like some group can just make arbitrary changes to your runtime. Yeah. Which kind of like frees up the token model to just think about like what value is the parachain providing? Like what is this application for instead of having to worry about securing it? Yes, but you know, you're saying it would be like super easy and I, I don't see that I, it's I didn't like say super... it would be easy. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> um for making sure that the collators uh, are working in alignment with the with the protocol and the net the network goal of the pirate chain, you you really have to have a sound rule system, and this is not so easy to design, and you have to make this in any case, even if Polkadot provides the security and 
I would say that just checking whether the collators followed the rules, you know, and if the rules are set up where there are like so many loopholes, the collators could go for the loopholes and the parachain validator said, yeah, they followed the rules. Yeah. So you really may have to make sure that your rules are sound. Well, then people shouldn't use that parachain. <laughs> this is another thing. So since dot holders have to, uh, since either the parachain just buys dots or uh, they get dots from investors so they can like connect a parachain to uh, Polkadot. You already have a mechanism where uh, it is checked that only the best parachains are linked to the protocol. And on top of that, parachains could say, okay, this parachain is like super bad. I just don't want to interact with it anymore. And then um, a great value that Polkadot provides is kind of diminished if this parachain is kind of ruled out just by the other ones. And then there is not there's less of an incentive to stay there. So, um, yeah, we do have uh, mechanisms that have a selection procedure within Polkadot, which is like really good. However, I, I just see in the whole blockchain scene that there is not so much a focus on these rule sets on, on the token economy. So we really have to make sure that these are sound, that there are enough sound projects with, with these sound rule sets and where the project or, or the blockchain also really provides a value to the community. Yeah, I mean, like the nice thing here is that you get to focus, your token kind of focus on this value. So like in Bitcoin, the Bitcoin has to be valuable because the security of the network depends on having the token be valuable. Whereas like in a parachain, since you're not, the security of the network doesn't really depend on your parachain token's value. It's almost like a resource limiter. Like you can, as a parachain, you can only fit so many transactions in a certain block. So you need some way of like prioritizing and ordering these transactions, right? Mm -hmm. And so like you could use the token for that, but you don't need to take security so much into account when you think about how to design this token. I mean, what, what do you mean with security more precisely? I think this should be nailed down. That would be very important. Yeah, I mean like the finality guarantees of the chain. Mm -hmm. So that if you see like a block, if you see a state at a certain block height, you'll never see the same, a different state at the same block height. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So for me, security is even more broader. For me, um, security always involves this 51% attack where you can change the, the rules. And this is not related to Polkadot. The Peric chain has to take care of itself. Yeah, definitely. For like the governance, um, like a governance attack. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to wrap up with like uh, more advice for people who are designing parachains or have we covered yes, it all? I actually do have an advice. So I would recommend to understand Bitcoin because it's the first blockchain that worked and we have it running for like 11 years already. So if you understand the incentive mechanisms of Bitcoin, you can apply these things on your own project. So I really understood token engineering, token economics much better when I really understood Bitcoin and then this whole decentrality and the value of decentralized networks like made much more sense for me. So this is what I could would recommend. But um, then what I already said is uh, to really make sure that the protocol or the parachain you're building provides a precise value. So which problem are you solving? And is it of value for the potential users? Because only then you have people that will use the protocol and only then the token has some value. And um, 
Yeah, then of course, make sure that the token is related to the usage of the protocol. So you need the token to access the protocol. Otherwise, if you can use it with another payment token or whatever, then the token doesn't have this value. So there are like actually many things to consider. And um, yeah, include the community with uh, bounty programs, checking for attack vectors. That's also super important or a really good idea. And yeah, just to sit down, get deep, nail it down, make it really clear. And yeah, so think of incentivizing all the participants to work towards your network goal, which you also need to like precisely define. Okay, where should people follow you to get in touch? <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter, um, Stephanie, so with F and I, I E and then V and then J A N. Maybe you can link we it. We can link it. Then, <laughs> then I don't even have to say yeah. that. Cool. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn and on Medium. I have quite some Medium posts where I'm also going deeper into token engineering and where you can also read up some things of that. Yeah, your writing's great. Uh, I definitely recommend your Medium. <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 